0: I'm James Hahn II, and you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is episode 51.5. 0.5 episodes are my chance to sit down with entrepreneurs, executives, and thought leaders from inside and outside the industry to hear their stories, what inspires their work, what culture drives their company, and what innovations they're bringing to the oil field. My guest today is Catherine Karim. Catherine is a board-certified immigration and nationality law attorney in Houston, Texas. She offers creative solutions to the countless and complicated problems people encounter within the United States immigration system. Catherine helps businesses and families with immigrant and non-immigrant cases. In addition to helping clients overcome the overwhelming complexity of entering the United States, she has successfully represented hundreds of individuals struggling with visas, naturalization, and removal issues. She attained her Juris Doctorate from the University of Texas School of Law. Before starting her own practice in 2013, she spent six years working in both small immigration clinics and large law firms. Catherine brings passion and compassion to every case she takes on. Catherine Haram, welcome. I am thrilled, thrilled, to have you here, honestly, because you know, as I've told you, Mark and I both get a lot of people asking us how to get jobs in the U.S., and we we don't have an answer for them because we're not attorneys. So,
1: <laughs> so,
0: so thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today.
1: Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: Where should we start? Because, like I said, we've got a lot of listeners actually in 110 countries around the world. Plenty of people always trying to get into into the industry. Let's start off with... We'll, we'll take it one at a time. So we'll start off with people currently working that are trying to get into the U.S., and then we'll move over to people that are about to graduate and then probably talk about layoffs because I know a lot of people that might be in the U.S. right now might be worried about that.
1: Yeah, that's what we've been hearing a lot of too.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So if someone is outside of the U.S., they're an engineer, they're a geologist, they're something... They're they're doing something in the oil field. Where do they start?
1: You know, we we get asked that a lot, too, uh, just like you guys do. And really, it's important for people to know how the U.S. immigration system works overall. Because when you understand that, it makes more sense why it seems so crazy or so random. Because...
0: It is crazy and random, though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: oh, absolutely. Um, but at least there's a way to... There's a framework in which you can understand it if you know kind of how it's built or, or the ideas behind it. So one of them is that we our immigration system is not like other countries that might have a way for someone to just come here and start working because we could use some people in this industry and, and why not? Or you have a lot of different things that, that could be of use in this country, so you just... Someone says, I'll give you a job somewhere, sometime, and that's enough. It it, it doesn't work like that. And so in our system, many, many um, people who want to come here and find a job and, and take advantage of opportunities that are here are going to have to fit into one or the other of a few categories. And if they can't fit into one of those, it can be pretty tough to get here.
0: So let me just stop you right there and make sure that I'm hearing this correctly. Because... What I just heard is basically you can't just want a job and come to the U.S.
1: Right. And the thing is, if those of us listeners who are in the United States who were in an election year and we're hearing a lot of information, and the thing is that we don't have a system that allows a person who wants to work and has the skills to just show up and find a job. It's not, that's not generally how it's contemplated to work. So For someone who's overseas, and they're saying, I work in oil and gas, or I want to get into oil and gas, and I want to work in the United States, what do I need to do? If I'm speaking to someone like that, what I generally want to know is, what is your work background? Um, Where where have you been employed, if you have um, before? And then I want to look at what categories do you or could you fit into? And that's where we begin. So where I have someone overseas and they um, are asking me about it, I want to ask them, is someone offering you a job here already or is that something you're going to need to be looking for? Uh, are you, ha- Have you or are you working at a multinational company that has a, a branch office in the United States? Because that may open up a possibility for you. Um, are you a university level graduate you know, even if it's in a different country than the United States to where it's equivalent to a university level degree here, either because of your education or because of your work experience or a combination of them, because that may offer an avenue to look at. But with all of those things, um, ultimately someone is going to need a U.S. employer to, to offer them something here. Is it
0: kind of like a sponsorship?
1: I, I I have trouble with the word sponsor because it means different things to different people. But for for many of the uh, work visa classifications that we see in oil and gas, which I can talk about in some more detail, but we usually see H one B, L one, uh, TN for people from Canada and Mexico, and, and those are the big ones we see a lot of. And, and can
0: can you can you talk us through those? Yes. Real
1: quick? Yeah, but before I do that, yeah. those do require job offers. They're not going to be something that someone can just say, I've got these skills and I can find somewhere to use them. There's going to be a U.S. employer offering a job. And so, in, you know, I find that in oil and gas, we see a lot of the use of the L1 visa. And that's because that particular visa is for people who've been working outside the United States at a branch office or the parent company or the subsidiary company that are going to be transferred into the US to one of the company's offices here. So you know to use, not that these are my clients, but to use an example we can all recognize maybe a company like Exxon or Shell or something like that, that has offices all over the world. They might have somebody in Malaysia that is skilled in a particular department and now they have a new project that's going to happen in Louisiana or something and so they identify that person as being particularly trained in that area, so they want to move them onto the project here. They're probably going to uh, try to get an L-1 visa for that person so that they can be transferred in as someone already employed by the company but overseas.
0: I'm going to be real geeky. What does L-1 stand for? What does it mean even?
1: I don't think it stands for something. You know, (laughs) our visa system has a, a, just about every letter of the alphabet, it has a, a Type of visa assigned to it,
0: right? So I don't think it. The there's, L stands for there's anything. There's no it's just, Yeah, yeah. That sounds like America.
1: Yeah, you know, we just went through the alphabet and assigned uh, something to each, <laughs> like, pretty much each letter.
0: Y'all use meters. We got feet. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Why, why bother with changing it? But <laughs> right. But yeah, it's it, it means that you're you're transferring into the U.S. from a, a position overseas with the same company, um, and so in oil and gas we see that a lot with these larger multinational companies and and that can be the the easiest way for them to move someone into the u.s and so we do see a lot of that so when i'm talking to someone that's overseas i want to ask them are you employed with somebody like that and have you asked if this is a possibility are there any projects that you could move on to that are in the united states because that may be the easiest way for you to get here another benefit of that is if, if if a person who's going to be applying for an l1 visa has a spouse coming with them the spouse can apply for a work permit and at that point that spouse can work wherever they want, which is nice. But that's one that we see a lot of. And there's no limit on how many L1s a company can do in a year. There's no limit on the total number that are available each year. So it's good for companies that can use it. But if you're somebody over, Would you say that's
0: the easiest way, possibly?
1: You know, I think in terms of procedure for large companies that 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 have a high volume of people transferring into the United States and out... It, it tends to be an easier procedural thing. Whether it's easier overall depends on the, each person's specific uh, set of circumstances. Is,
0: is there an average length of time that someone could expect to go through with an L1 or is it, it could vary just because that's the way the system works?
1: Dep- it could vary and it would depend on d- there is such a thing as a blanket petition for a company. So if a company has a high volume, but in short, it's companies do high volume of L transfers in and out. Um, Where a company has that blanket in place, it tends to be easier procedurally for most people, not everybody. Uh, And it could be as simple, it could be as short as about six weeks, start to finish, depending on how things go. Then others, you might have as much as six months or so. And there are are all kinds of different reasons why... So set your
0: expectations really low well, it, <laughs> probably
1: it set set the expectations that that you know it, be ready for things to take longer than you're hoping or longer than you see on a website, this, a blog posting of somebody because every everything can be a little bit different. Every case can be different. The immigration service, the consulates, can slow down or speed up depending on their workload. So all those things go into it, and you know it, it's the kind of thing that if it's in the works and you know, you're you're waiting on it. it. If your company is working on this, they may do what they need to do, and it, it may or may not be, there may not be a way to speed it up as much as you'd like it to, so to understand that at the outset, that there's a limit to how much you can push and bother people. But, that being said, it it is a, procedurally, it can, especially with a blanket petition, it can be an easier way in terms of procedures and things like that. But, um you know there have been articles in the last 3 years about certain L1 visas for specialized knowledge workers getting denied at about a 35 or 40% rate which is
0: that seems high
1: it's it it's high compared to historically what we used to see um and it means that the immigration service is really pushing back on the question of whether someone has specialized knowledge in a company or not and so people like me have to be very very thorough and very, we have to become a, like a mini expert in what our clients are doing so that we can explain it to the immigration service or to the consulate, to their satisfaction. So
0: so we talk about the L1. Yeah. What are other avenues for those guys that are working or right. women?
1: Yeah. And so uh, I mentioned earlier the H1B. And the H1B is something that if you're reading uh, United States articles about this, about work visas and things like that, you'll see a lot about this because it's the subject of a lot of debate uh, over the years. So, How so? One of um, of the things that we've seen a lot of lately is question about, um, well, I I in particular have seen it on some oil and gas sites that some of the people who are posting mention that they think it's a way to get cheap labor into the United States. Um, You know, H-1B visas actually have a set... Um, they have a uh, wage requirement that has to be met and the Department of Labor actually has to okay that. So it, it is not a, a cheap labor program and in my experience the, the wages set by the Department of Labor are a little bit higher than what we normally see because of the way they calculate their the, the minimum wage that someone has to pay. But I, I believe in some industries, and this may be more in tech I'm not sure, but I think in some industries, what some people have seen is that they a starting level H-1B visa holder could come into a job and make less than a seasoned employee. And may I, I guess that that is what, I suspect that that's what some of what we're seeing. Um, but another reason why you see it in the news a lot is not just question of is this cheap labor, is this replacing people or not. Another thing is it's numerically limited. Um, so every year there's only... 65,000 H-1Bs for university graduates and 20,000 for people who earned a master's in the United States. For
0: You're talking total? Yes,
1: total for the year. you like right? not
0: even, okay, this university gets 65? No. No, okay.
1: It's for the whole, for anybody who wants to apply for an H-1B, there are 65,000 and then an extra 20,000 for U.S. master's degree graduates. So that's a very so small number. So you have
0: method. a very point zero 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 one chance of getting in on that.
1: Well, it really, according to last year's data, you have about a one in three or four chance. Really? And the reason I say that is because the, uh, last year there were around 230,000 people who applied for those 85,000 H-1Bs. We don't know how many of those 230,000 had U.S. master's degrees because that that 20,000 is a separate cap and gives people a second bite at the apple in a way but it it, when you think about it that way it's about a third to a fourth of 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 the people who apply could could get selected so you know uh, an attorney maybe last year who filed six if they were fortunate maybe two of them would get selected if they were really lucky maybe they'd get more but statistically you could guess that maybe a third would get selected so you know, and but it, if you think about what you need for an H-1B, it, this is a visa that's supposed to be for, it has nothing to do with where you've worked overseas, per se. You need to show that you have a U.S. degree or its equivalent and that you have a job offer to come to the United States or to stay here if you're, you know, already here as a student or something like that. But you have a job offer here to fill a position that... Requires that degree or something related to it, and so in oil and gas, you would see this where you have an engineering graduate, and a company needs engineers, and so they offer a position to somebody, and file to get them an H one B.
0: So this this starts to get into the people that that reach out to us, and it's a lot of them, right? Who are saying, "Hey, I'm 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 a petroleum engineering student." In you mentioned Malaysia before. I've had a lot of people from Nigeria uh, right. reach out just really across the globe right and and so we're getting into that territory with H1B
1: you you could be because if a per, whether a person has just graduated with their degree or they've been out working for a while they could qualify for this but the 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 key hurdles to me with H1B are you have to have a job offer so do you get that or not and it can be difficult to find an employer that's willing to be a petitioner for you um and, and that's every employer's decision. and it,
0: it They prob- have to absorb that cost, basically.
1: I advise my clients to absorb the cost. I think that they are obligated to, but also they, they have to understand the obligations legally and be willing to do that. And some companies, depending on what the market's doing, may just say, look, we're not interested in doing that right now. We're, we're just going to focus on hiring people who don't require that. Other companies might say, "I don't care what I have to do if I get the person I want."
0: Well, and that's a really interesting point right now because upstream oil and gas is is you know hurting with low oil prices and everything, right. but they can't hire people fast enough. Downstream, there's a fifty billion dollar construction boom happening on the east side of Houston, right? Because refineries just, they, they, like I said, they they're, they're shortage of work over there, and and so I wonder how many people internationally fit into that because not a lot of international, uh, we have most of the, a lot of the refining in America, or I'm sorry, in the world happens in America and and not in the Middle East and places like that. So I wonder how, many, how much of those jobs are transferable, but that's for more for Mark LaCour. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, okay. we'll, we'll leave that up to him. Okay. All right. So H1B, L1, and what and else? And I,
1: I had also mentioned, um, the TN visa which is only for people from Canada and Mexico um, the TN it was created by our treaty nafta with um, with uh, Mexico and Canada and, and that's why it's called TN actually is treaty nafta it's the only it's one of the only ones that has the the name actually has <laughs> to do with it but um, for TNs um, there is a specific list of positions that fit the TN visa classification and if someone has one and has the a listed, you know, work experience or degree or both that are required on, according to the TN list, then they can qualify if they have a job offer to come and fill that position. So it can happen for engineers, some other scientific fields. I think that's where you're normally going to see your oil and gas uh, work. Another good thing about TNs, like, uh, like the L1s, is they're not limited every year. So if someone is able to apply for one, they don't have to worry about numbers running out. So that's a good thing for that. Um, And and beyond those, there is an E3 visa for Australians. It's very similar to the H1B, but it's only for Australians. And and when you see this, you can see how random our our system is. We've got carve-outs for certain countries, and so that's one thing about it that understanding the randomness of it that that you may hear something and it sounds like it doesn't make sense is really important if you're not sure what you're doing or your employer's unsure that you get to someone who's who's experienced and credentialed because you don't wanna blow your chance for something, but at the same time you want if it's if the answer is no, this is not possible you wanna know that before you invest a lot so you know, it, it it's it's something that everybody needs to be sure they're informed about before you go all in, so to speak. Um, but those are some of the ones you're going to see a lot is the, the H-1B, the L-1, the TN. And occasionally, uh, if you are maybe uh, somebody who's a researcher or a really high-level scientist, you might see an O-1 visa, which is for uh, people with extraordinary ability, and that usually means uh judging or critiquing the work of others being published in scholarly articles or trade journals and and having other things like that a significant contribution in your field sometimes we'll see a researcher brought in or or something like that and and but that's more rare i think your h your l and your tn are the really common ones
0: so did we did we touch on everything that might affect a student at this point
1: Well, so if we're talking about, I'll just say this, if we're we're talking about someone who's graduated overseas and is interested in coming to the United States, what we talked about earlier with someone who's saying, I want to come and work in the United States, that's going to hold true for them just like anybody who might have been working for a while and is interested. If we have um, international student graduates in the United States, depending on their specific circumstances, they may, when they're graduating, get to apply for a year of, uh, work authorization, and that is that policy or that avenue is in place so that students can take the skills that they've acquired in their their studies and put them to use for a little bit after they graduate. And so that's called uh, your optional practical training period, and people call it OPT. So if if you're graduating in the United States and you're eligible for that one year of OPT, that gives you a chance to start working somewhere. And, and uh, you know, I, I tell people who are asking me about this, it's a chance for you to build a relationship with a prospective employer. So if you're a student graduating from a U.S. university, you have that one year of, of OPT, that's the time. First of all, there are requirements that you cannot not be working for so many days or you may lose your status. But also, it's a chance to build a relationship with a future H-1B sponsor or something like that. So it's that's an important time for international graduates of u s universities uh, because they may then go into filing for an H1B and seeing if they get selected. Um, there is also a seventeen month additional extension of the OPT. If you're a graduate of STEM field, there are certain requirements for that, but that's something that people are starting to use now if they can't get an H1B or something like that.
0: What if I was a um what if I had an undergrad? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, internationally, is there, is there uh, an avenue for me to do graduate studies in America?
1: Yes, there is. And so for a situation like that, a person generally applies for admission to the program that they want, and if they're admitted to the program, they're issued a f- special form that's called an I-20, and they have to use that and their information about themselves to apply for a student visa and then come to the United States. And so someone maybe who's got their bachelor's degree and they've been uh, accepted into a master's program, that's the general avenue that they're going to use. But the thing that people have to be aware of um, when you're applying for a student visa or even a visitor visa, which we're not really talking about today because we're focusing more on work visas and things like that, but it's really important that the the people at uh, the US embassies and consulates they have a presumption, and this is written into law, it's not just an attitude, their presumption is that a person wants to come here and stay here and never leave. Well, we all know that that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of people who want to move all over the place, and, and you know, coming to the United States for study or work or both may just be a stepping stone to something else. But that is the presumption, and it's the visa applicant's job to overcome that presumption. So
0: you're, you're almost presumed guilty until proven innocent.
1: Right. This is not like our U.S. criminal justice system. <laughs> so yes, you you you're it's people assume that you want to come here and stay here long term, and it's your job if you're applying for a student visa or a visitor visa to prove them wrong. So I have a lot of um, inquiries from people who said, I went to go apply for my student visa or I went to go apply for my visitor visa and I was turned down. And if I'm going to help them apply again, we really have to be thorough in our uh, information about that. And it's, it's always, you know, on, on, for my part, I'm always feeling like, geez, I wish I'd met this person before they tried the first time so we could have caught this the first time around. But
0: yeah, that I'm, probably I'm happens telling to everybody a, now. It probably happens to you a lot, right? Where you're just <laughs> like, ah, I wish I could have talked to you 12 months ago.
1: Yeah, it's. I, I tell people um, that it's very important to be sure that that you're thorough in what you're doing when you're applying for a visa, and be sure that you're ready to talk about what you're doing when you land in the United States and you get off your plane. Because a lot of people don't also a lot a lot of people don't know that just because you have a visa does not mean you will get into the U.S. to do what you wanted to do. So. I get a lot of inquiries from people who said, well, I am. I had a visitor visa or I had this or that, and when I landed, I started being asked all these questions and I didn't know how to answer it or I got nervous and I froze, and the next thing I knew, they were putting me on a plane back and, and now we have to start over.
0: So I want to get into that in just a minute um, because having talked to you a few different times, I know that there are a l- there's a lot of just nonsense out there. So I want to I want to kind of you know wrap in in a few minutes with with kind of some tips on where to stay away from and and so forth. Um, okay. But but let's let's touch on real quick here the the people that that might be working here and right. are worried they might be getting laid off because there's a lot of layoffs happening.
1: Right, and we've worked with at my office. I know we've worked with a lot of people who are concerned about that or who it's happened to, and for people who have just been, for example, one one scenario is somebody comes and says, "I just got informed yesterday that I'm being laid off, and my last day will be in a couple of days." And for somebody like that, um, one very unfortunate aspect of our our visa system is that for a lot of the visas we have in the United States, there's no grace period. If your work ends, technically your status ends, and the onus is on you to you know get ready to relocate or whatever it is you're going to do next. So it puts people in a really tight spot, and one thing that happens to a lot of people is if they've come to the United States assuming they're going to be on a work assignment for three or four years or maybe more, they often either have a lease on an apartment, have invested in a home because that's a real estate investment for them. They may own a vehicle. There may be all kinds of different loose ends that need to be tied up. If you're going to relocate internationally, all those things have to get taken care of before you go, ideally, and so... One thing that that person might want to consider is trying to file to change from their work visa status that's going to go away anyway to maybe visitor just to buy a couple of months to tie up those loose ends. When we do that, it's really important that we document that that's what they're going to do. Um, and so that's why I work with people on that. But that's one thing that that we do when somebody is kind of caught off guard for this and they need... Buy this and they need some time. Um, some people have already, uh, when they get news like that, they already know that they're interested in maybe, you know, pursuing a higher degree. And so for them, if they've already been accepted to a program, we might have to just try to switch them over to student. A program in the U.S. Right. If they're trying to stay here to continue and they're trying to study, we may have to file to switch them over to student at that point if we can. And then, you know, for others, unfortunately if there's not another avenue, they may just have to prepare to relocate and it's with some visas, um, the employer is obligated to pay the return ticket where the employee is, uh, you know, laid off before the end of the um, the the end of their petition period that the employer originally requested. So H-1B is one example of those. O-1 is another. Um, if somebody's here in one of those statuses, the employer has that obligation. So that's something to be mindful of because an international flight is expensive, and that's one less thing that the employee is. It has to worry about, supposedly. So uh, that's something. Uh, another thing that that we've been talking to a lot of people about is, I'm hearing about layoffs. I'm here in the U.S. I'm concerned about the layoffs. So what could I do now when this hasn't happened to me, but it theoretically could? And one um, one thing that we've been looking at a lot is can, because generally speaking, a person who wants to become a permanent resident in the United States, in other words, they want to have a green card, which those two terms mean the same thing, and they mean that you can reside in the U.S. long term. Um, A lot of people are are interested in that. A lot of employers um, have their own policy on whether they will do that for their employees or not, and right now I'm not seeing a lot of that from oil and gas companies because of the market condition at the moment. So people, knowing that their employer is not... Um, amenable to filing to help them get permanent residence, th- they're looking at what could I do on my own. And I, I know at my office, we've really tried to look at could this person make a case for a self-petition for residence? And a lot of that is pretty subjective, and it depends on some of the ways that we can show they've made a contribution in their field that a, another person who is also you know technically qualified wouldn't necessarily be able to make. A lot of it hinges on that. And Does so, a lot
0: also hinge on how long you've been here, probably?
1: Not necessarily, really? actually. Yeah, it's, it, it, which is why our it, it seems counterintuitive. You would think if somebody has been here a while and has put down some roots, that would count for something. It doesn't always. So um, for a self-petition, for someone who's thinking long-term and saying, I know my employer won't do this, so I'm interested in it, can I do this on my own? it's it's time intensive and it's it requires a lot of uh, researching and digging that we do when we're working on this because we really want to get a good look at what is this person able to do and contribute and it's not the same circumstance maybe. Um, so these some of these self petitions are called national interest waivers. Um, there's another category that we use a little bit less a lot of the time but For national interest waivers, you typically see those where you have a scientist that's had an original contribution that was really important and can really benefit our country. In oil and gas, you may or not have that kind of thing, but you might have other situations that are significant and that make a difference, but they're harder to document and they're more subjective, and that's where we've started to go with with some of my practices, to look at that and say, can we do this? Is it worth a shot? And so that's been a new thing for us in the last couple of years that we've enjoyed because it's given some people an avenue that they needed. And so that's another thing we look at sometimes too is does the person want to do that and can they do that? But um, you know, everyone's situation is different and I can't say that enough because it's true. But if somebody's concerned about layoffs and that nothing has happened yet, that's still a good time to talk to someone like me because at least knowing what to look for and, and what to be thinking about is is useful.
0: And I want to I, I want to sort of uh, wrap with a little conversation about the importance of talking to someone like you. <laughs> I the little bit that I know just from having people reach out to me and myself trying to Google and find answers, and then also a little experience. Knowing uh, you know some people in some different cultures, there's a lot of things that people believe that are simply not true. There's a lot of things that are said on the internet that are simply not true, and and I can't stress that enough the importance of talking to a, a an experienced attorney that actually knows because it, a lot of people I've I've met over the years they've well over over my year here in Houston actually. They're a lot of the time living off of rumors, and a lot of the time those have nothing to do with reality
1: that's true that there there are a lot of rumors and there are a lot of websites out there and and it's i i there are so many ways there's so many stories I could tell about it because I've been practicing immigration for over eight years now, so it's it's been this has been what I've been doing all this time but it's a highly technical field and All types of little details make a difference, and one wrong thing can make a huge difference for someone. And so having someone who's not just an experienced attorney but experienced in immigration is a really big thing because people who care about this field enough to stick with it over years, or for some people even decades, it it means that you know what's important, you're used to it, and you care about it, at least that's what it means for me, so watching for those things and and letting someone know some of these issues that can can come up is a really important part of it. And so it's, I, I, I have some clients that are, especially in oil and gas, some of my clients are so skilled and so brilliant. And I, it's not like I can compare my knowledge to theirs because we're doing totally different things. But what I, the way I have learned to describe it is that it's this isn't a science, it's an art. That even though it's a technical field in a way, it really is knowing how people that you have to deal with think and understanding that we don't have an immigration system that is automated. It's There is always a human making a decision and when you think about recent events in the United States and and, for example, the shooting in San Bernardino and the fact that a person had gotten a fiancé visa and come here and was involved in that, it caused everybody to question fiancé visas, which actually are quite vetted, um, caused people to look at, um, the the parachutings caused people to look at the visa waiver program uh, and how people might use that. We didn't talk about that today, but knowing that there are people looking at everything that you write and everything that you do, and so even some of your history, some of your social media, a- and how they will look at that is a big part of what I'm doing when I'm helping someone with one of these processes. And then also knowing where are the where is the questioning going to come up or where do you need to be prepared that you might not already know? So I mentioned earlier, just because you have a visa and you land in the U.S. doesn't mean you're going to get in and be able to do what you want to do. I've learned to to really make sure that my clients know when you land at the airport, expect to be questioned, expect to be asked, where is your work site? What is your position there? Um, do you know who your supervisor is? Would it be possible for us to call him if it's business hours? That can happen. And to make sure somebody's prepared and... Um, has the information materials they need is important. And where somebody's looking at something as a long-term strategy, like what if I get laid off? Should I pursue a self-petition? Do I even qualify? We really want to look at how do we think somebody will look at this, and if we don't know how they'll feel about it, if it's it's 50-50 or something like that, what could we do that would make it the best it could be? And so Googling things, I have, is, I have a plenty of people who come to see me who say, I started looking this up and I just got so confused. I figured, let me just go talk to someone. And I found your office and I decided to come here. And I love it when that happens because if it helps people to understand what they really need to be thinking about, great. I, I That's where my work with people begins. So it, that is important that it's not something that that a person necessarily is going to be able to answer for themselves through websites. It's, it, it's really important to build a relationship with someone you feel comfortable with and that you can trust so that when you need the advice and the help, it's there and you've got that relationship with someone. So that's, I love that aspect of it personally, but that's, that's what I would say about that.
0: Well, I, I, I really appreciate your passion and in, in all of the knowledge that you've given us. If someone wanted to learn more about you and your practice, where would they go and where would you send them?
1: Oh well, I, I would tell them to look at my website. So, I, I originally conceptualized myself as, as someone who loves solving problems. So, my website is Immisolver. That's I M M I S O L V E R dot You can also go to Karim Immigration. My last name is K A R A M immigration.com, and that'll route you there. So, we have an active blog on my site. We like to talk about, you know, current immigration issues. Um, We've got some information about some of the visas I talked about and and, uh, some of the other uh, immigration issues that a lot of my clients are asking about and just about my team uh, because this is not a solo project here. I have an office and uh, we're up to five people at this point and so... There's information about them there, too. So that's where I would tell people to go to learn about us.
0: Well, hopefully we will drive so much traffic to your website that you have to double, triple, quadruple the staff. (laughs) (laughs) That would be fantastic. Thank you very much again, Catherine.
1: Thank you very much, James. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Oil & Gas This Week podcast. Join us for another 0.5 episode Wednesday when we'll talk to Neil Wendt about Lean Six Sigma and his time serving our country in the United States Air Force. You know, the mission of the Air Force is not to make money, right? It's to put bombs on bad guys. That's what we do in the Air Force. Until then, go find some grease, guys.